This passage is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 43, verses 1 to 7, and can be found on page 698 of the Old Testament. But now, this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead. Since you're precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. The second reading is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, verses 15 to 22, and can be found at page 64 of the New Testament. As the people were filled with expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah. John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I'm not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. But Herod the ruler, who had been rebuked by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the evil things that Herod had done, added to them all by shutting up John in prison. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son, the beloved. 
with you, I am well pleased. Thank you for your welcome. It's good and a pleasure to be with you again this morning. And uh, if you like, if you like the picture and the analogy, I bring greetings from the uh, 150 churches in Central Baptist Association and the 11,500 members thereof. So if you can imagine the behind me looking quite crowded, we're all saying it's good to be here this morning. But I'm not here as a representative. As you may know, liturgically, most of the church is in Epiphany, following on a celebration of the coming of the wise men last week in the churches. Epiphany means revelation. And in this period of Epiphany, the church particularly thinks of the glimpses and the echoes of the glory of God that are given. Last week, thinking of the travelers from the east and Christ being shown not to be just a small local affair, but there for the peoples of the world. This week, we move forward to what should be for Baptists an open goal to speak about, because it's John the Baptist and the baptism of Jesus. In thinking of a working title for this sermon, I came up with The Stature of Waiting. Some of you may know that this was a title chosen by the Anglican theologian William Vanstone for his book of 40 years ago, where he focused upon Holy Week and the way in which Jesus becomes increasingly powerless in one way, but speaks about the power of vulnerability in the way in which he deals with the situations and the people who come to him. I would like to pick up the theme saying that waiting is not necessarily something that is simply passive, nor is it a period of inactivity. Rather, as we look to remove the busyness of living for a moment, to set aside the preoccupations that absorb so much time and energy, as we strip, strip back to the basic, our lives, there is a profound and uncluttered space there for God to work. Maybe I'm telling you something that you already know. In our Old Testament reading, we caught something of the prophet speaking to the nation that was held in hope. We know the context that by the time the prophet was writing, uh, the people were no longer had the power of empire of David and Solomon. They were one of a small number of client nations, always dominated by the great military and economic powers whether it was the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, they were sort of like a political football, kicked from one to the other. They had little self-determination or room for manoeuvre politically. Isaiah speaks words of confidence, which many people must have thought could not ring true because that was not how the world was. But they were learning to wait hopefully. The 
present meant that they were a real vassal state. And uh, history would show they had brief periods of self-determination, but generally they would be a second-rate people. There would be people who came proclaiming new hope, new beginnings. There would be many disappointments and frustrations as the years passed by, but still the people would wait in expectation that God would do something for them. Yes, there were times, as we can read in the New Testament, back into the Old Testament, when they were dominated by nostalgia. This was how it had been and this was how it would be again. They became sometimes hardened in their self-righteousness, unable to hear God speaking to them in other than echoes from the past. And yet, as the prophets and the writings remind us, the people longed and hoped to be attentive to the promptings of God. <clears throat> John the Baptist was one of those reminders. I'm willing to understand with the New Testament commentators that because the gospel writers are more interested in Jesus than they are in John, that what we get is sort of a summary of what was a powerful and influential religious revival in that area. John perhaps carries for many of us the image of a popular prophet. He's a rugged individual, uncompromising in his message, and just a wee bit eccentric. He's the sort of figure that a prophet should be, we think. Someone who is in the wilderness, challenging the people. He has a revivalist fire about him that draws the people to him. But we look carefully at his message, and it's not quite what we might imagine. He speaks more than just a word about personal peccadilloes. He does direct the people to their failings and invites them to respond, but in his demands of them, he talks about justice and about sharing and about honest dealings expected from those who respond to his message. Coming past friend's house today, the banner in Euston Road says, by faith, we are making the world a fairer place. There's something about that of John's message. It's not just to correct individual lives. It's about reshaping the world in which people live. For John appeared to know, as we know, that people do not grow up in isolation to act for good or ill. They are shaped by the community they inherit and the world that they make around them so that their lives are, to some extent, directed and shaped by others. John's message then, the message of change and renewal, becomes something that speaks into the structures as well as the individuals. Within my own association, one of our places of higher education is looking for an ecumenical chaplain. And though we have tried rightly to speak about the pastoral responsibilities and the spiritual responsibilities of such a person, 
We have tried to, to maintain that that person should speak into the ethos and the values and the outcomes of the institution that shapes the people for the world. So indeed, the, the Christian church will find its challenge sometimes to be a voice for the voiceless, to speak, as the Quakers would say, to speak truth to power, even though the church is not always heard or appreciated, or if we're honest, at times, wholly right. But even John, this revivalist preacher, this man who sought for change, is held by the expectation of something more. He is waiting too. And the crowds gathered to him. Let your imagination run riot for a few moments and place yourself among that crowd. What was it like to be there with the curious and the convinced, the seekers and the tourists, the guilty and the released, the jubilant and the scoffers, the sick, the healthy, the younger, the older, people of differing backgrounds, all brought together because they've heard something about a different life a better life, echoes of the possibility of redemption for them. They are there, daring and dreaming and doubting. People like you and me. What's it like to be in that crowd with those people? Are they queuing up or jostling stretching forward to see what's happening in the water? Are they talking or is there a holy silence? Is there a buzz about what's going on or a sense of consternation or of hope and renewal? As they gather together, they're waiting to see, is God for us? John has pierced their personal shell that they have gathered around them has challenged their social mores has brought questions about their national identity under God so that he can unfold for them a picture of the greatness of God who invites them to meet with him and be changed And perhaps we can see in our mind's eye Jesus, who stands patiently with all the others. The Gospels are largely empty of that period between Christmas and uh, the beginning of the ministry. An unreported life spent waiting and preparing as God permeates Jesus' life and understandings and he comes to the point of meeting John this is not acting out a script as if it were preordained that nothing else could be done here Jesus comes with the others to commit himself to God a God who requires of people justice and compassion and plain dealing. 
baptism is the beginning of following the discipleship road. Not knowing every twist and turn, but being confident in God who walks beside and brings people to share in the journey. This is one, I think, of the joys that we have as Baptists to share with our brothers and sisters of other traditions. A community of people gathered around Christ, committed to each other to enjoy their presence and their diversity, to build one another up, to learn how to disagree without being disagreeable. This surely is what we hold as our community vision that brings us out as part of the world. A new community for a new world that we hope will emerge. And as the manger and the angels and the shepherds and the travellers from the east fade into memory, there is Jesus alongside the widow and the collector of taxes, the soldier and the prostitute, the merchant, the woman who farms, the fisherman, the mother, the owner of slaves, the carpenter's son. And here we listen again. God is with us here. The thing about John's ministry, of course, is it was meant to be transformational. People were to change when they heard and responded. So too for Jesus. We know from our own experience, perhaps, that change can be instantaneous or it can be over a much longer period. It is different for each one, just as it was different for Jesus from those with whom he stood in the crowd. But for Jesus, this moment is a moment of disclosure about God and about himself. The voice, the bird, Mark, um, um, Luke follows Mark in saying that it's for Jesus that these signs come. You are my beloved son. And it's before the theologians get in to explain what it is, why Jesus has to get into the waters and all the other sorts all the other explanations that we see fundamentally that Jesus embraces wholeheartedly this call to be part of what God is doing. Whether or not John had a grasp of psychology, he would have known that not everybody who was there on that day would respond, would change, would stand the pace they would carry drift, different trajectories. For some it would be a day-long commitment and for others a lifelong commitment. He surely would have understood what we sang about the deeper revolution that is needed to change lives, not in a moment, but in a lifetime. Those who were there that day, who made honest commitments and tried to keep it and failed, <clears throat> it's not a disaster. Nor does it negate their initial enthusiasm or understandings. But for Jesus, he is gripped by this turning point. 
It drives his thirst for God, his concern for people, his announcement of the kingdom that is here. Not for those who are perfect, not for those who are fixated on personal success, but those who are willing to be seekers, finding joy and satisfaction in the being and doing of the people of God. <clears throat> the path of discipleship is not always onwards, ever upwards. Rather, it is often the hard slog of learning, relearning, and unlearning. <clears throat> but with God in Christ, by the Spirit and with one another, it is worth it. So for us too, the glimpses and echoes of glory in the everyday and in the significant, where God breaks in and we appreciate. The call is to be not so busy doing that we fail to value the waiting on God. Those who have ears to hear, eyes to see. The glimpses and echoes are there in the person whose prejudice is changed, in the simple act of kindness, in a bridge that's built and not a wall, where the stranger is welcomed and in whom there is seen a person and not a label, in the connections that are made between scripture, experience and hope and in the joy of receiving from another human being that which enriches and enhances. These and many, many more are our opportunities for glimpses and echoes, catching a sense of God. Here is the fruit of our waiting. Here the kingdom of God waits for us. The theologian and poet Malcolm Geith has penned some words reflecting this moment in the story of Jesus. We hear the words and then there will be a moment of quiet as we reflect on what we've heard, what we've sung, what we hope for. <clears throat> Beginning here, we glimpse the three in one. The river runs, the clouds are torn apart, the Father speaks, the Son, the Spirit and the Son reveal to us the single loving heart that beats behind the being of all things and calls and keeps and kindles us to light. The dove descends, the Spirit soars and sings, You are my beloved. You are my delight. In that quick light and life, as water spills and streams around the man like quickening rain, the voice that made the universe reveals the God in man who makes it new again. He calls us too to step into that river to die and rise and live and love forever.
Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this church community and for this new start of year. We are approaching the last week of the night shelter and we would like to thank you for all the volunteers that came in and helped uh, by cooking and setting up the space, by staying overnight and being at your disposal. We would like to thank you for everyone who found a home and a job this winter through C4WS because they found more than a home and a job, they also found hope. We also like to thank you for the ability to support C4WS and we hope that we can continue to do so. We'd like to also thank you for this country and pray because we are approaching um, Brexit and we would like to pray for all those people who are worried about their future in this country and who are worried for their safety as well. But we would also like to pray for those people who feel that their voice is not heard. And we pray for you to reassure them and show them your love. We pray for good relationships with our neighbors, be it in this city or neighbors who are, well, countries in the world. We pray for the world as well, for the US government, for those people in the United States who are waiting for their month's pay right now. We are praying and asking you to give the government wisdom moving forward in this new year. But most of all, we pray that your love will shine through in the world and hold us together. Amen. <coughs>